Yeah, uh, I want to start off by asking you a question. Asking both of you a question. So, here's a hypothetical for you. I want you to immerse yourself into this concept. Imagine you live in the 17th century, and you have a wife and children, and you want them to be safe, happy, prosperous, whatever. Whatever you want for them, it's fine. How do you go about doing that? I mean, that depends. Mm-hmm. Where was I born, and where well, do I live? You're born scenario? somewhere in Europe. Somewhere in Europe. You live somewhere in Europe. I'd... Ask me Ask me other questions. That doesn't really narrow down enough. Yeah, like, that, that, no, that's that's okay. What country that's in Europe was I born difference. in? Europe. Was, if you, that's if all the you information. Had said Germany, you'd barely have narrowed it down more in the 17th century. Oh, I know. Well, Germ- Germany didn't exist, if we're being real. Exactly, uh, that's why right. I said it, the Germanese. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to be that pedantic. Oh, too late. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, why I said it, but yeah. What is my, like, social class? Was I born mm-hmm. with money? Socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. No, with not a really. lot of money? No. Okay. No money? No money, but you have a certain set of skills. Are they murder skills? Sure. Is it like, is it Liam Neeson and Taken saying sure. have a certain set of skills? Yeah. I could be that. I don't Are we talking like so- soldier or political though. assassin? No, you've already, you've already had the, the kids and the, and the wife. Well, how did you, I get... It's too late to go back on that decision. How did I get money to have the dowry to have the wife? No, you didn't. So I stole her? Yeah. Okay, so I stole a wife. Sure, let's say that. Did she For the want sake of argument. to steal her? Yeah, she's happy. Okay. Okay. Well... Since I've already abandoned morality, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, yeah. I, I I have skills which are set up for murder, not for uh, soldiery or for other aspects. Specifically for murder, I have ignored the the rules uh, for marriage and legal uh, conduct in whatever land I am in in order to secure a wife and have children. Uh, then my thing for that is to lie, cheat, steal, and murder until I have enough income that they don't need to make choices. All right. Not that they don't not, not that they can't make choices, that they don't need to. No. Yeah, that's probably more or less where I don't. And that I that that is prefaced upon the fact that I have already abandoned all aspects of morality. Fantastic. Gentle listener, welcome to Michael and Ethan in the Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal. These are my guests, Ethan Bartlett, and our special guest, Nick Lilienthal. I was going to like, ask you if you were so going to do an introduction or if you'd forgotten, um, <laughs> but I didn't want to yeah. kind of like go you didn't want to derail everything. I didn't want to go outside mm-hmm. the spirit of the yeah. thought experiment you were doing. Like, I mean, who knows if I had I, any I, real I, direction I, to see, that thought experiment. Since I yeah, was a like, special guest, I just thought that they kind of tried to... I thought the introduction had already happened. Like it was, was going to be ported <laughs> in from somewhere else. And so I was like, I guess we're just going straight into it. I don't know. 
Uh, no, we don't pre-record anything on this no, podcast. There's very little editing. Especially not Karen reading the rules. Yeah, right. which um, maybe we should have her do that after I mention that we are still drinking. Ethan and I are dr- still drinking uh, Ben Riach, the 12 Space Eyed Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Um, and uh, as we talked about in uh, our episode 1.5 uh, that will not be released, uh, this is the three cask matured scotch. Uh, matured in sherry casks, then bourbon casks, and then port casks. Um, all under the uh, Benriach Master Blender, Rachel Berry. Um, and so that's what Ethan and I are drinking. Nick, what are you drinking? Uh, Diet Wild Cherry Pepsi still. Sweet. Sweet. Super sweet. But not with sugar. Um, it, it probably would be fairly sweet still. I think. Still. Mm-hmm. Still. Yeah. yeah. It, it actually, uh, the, part of the reason is I don't taste a difference, which is surprising to me. So that yeah, nice. that's good. Well, with that, yes, uh, Ethan, why don't you get your wife in here, um, the one that you've uh, robbed of all decisions, yep. um, and have her read the rules for us. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thanks, thanks, wife. Yep. Uh... Really, like, I actually pretty constantly accuse her of robbing me of all decisions. <laughs> That's fair. Because uh, she, like, more or less forced me to marry her. <laughs> and by forced me, I mean, like, <clears throat> she was very attractive and I did want to marry her and then I did that. How dare she? Which was, like, really upsetting to my life plan of <laughs> ending up as, like, a hermit living in the woods um, in that. a cave with a lot of books. <laughs> uh so yeah, that's uh, so what kind of person uh, this, insinuates uh, herself into your life that way. I don't know. <laughs> this this is uh, a question that we should not go into, but it's a thing of. So did she rob you of freedom or license? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that sounds like a line from a novel set in the 17th century. It does. With that, Lachaim <laughs> Schlancha. <laughs> Do you know how that word is pronounced? I just chose to pronounce it bad on purpose. Sure. All right, yes, gentle listener, we are still discussing The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. 
remaining with the uh, the rule and effect that Nick mentioned uh, at the beginning of last episode, I'm not going to repeat it because if I did, I would break that rule. Um, <laughs> so you, you have to go back and listen to that yourself. You don't know how tempted I was to, to add in uh, Daemon? D A E M O N, and hear you both, and and see whether either of you would repeat it, and then me lock you in there. But no, (laughs) yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. you don't know how much of a how much bait that would have been for me because, like, Mm -hmm. I have a whole rant locked and loaded about Ah, that concept and how that concept is not the same as either of the other two things. True, you're correct. It's true. um, Mm -hmm. At least not in the in the historical concept context. Rather, mm-hmm. um, it, it certainly would not be the same thing. Right. Uh, but oh. I, after one episode having gone by and as many word fumbles as I've done already these first few <laughs> minutes, I do not trust myself to navigate those waters um, given Uh-oh, the did rule I lose you guys? in place. Okay, no. Nice. So, navigate those waters. Thank you. Uh, good job. Um, very nice, very yes. nice. Mm-hmm. You need um, folly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, there, there are like so many yeah, unanswered questions, unexplored topics uh, that are. are remaining in this book. True, that we haven't discussed since last episode. Um, and like we touched on morality a fair amount, and so I, I'll give you the the key into the uh, the the thought experiment unfair question that I asked you at the beginning of this episode. I was thinking particularly. Of Guard Captain Drecht. Ah, uh, sure. yes. Um, who, in terms of morality, if you want to come at this book from the angle of morality, I think his is the most interesting character. Hmm. Um, it's him-centered. Right. It's because he has this morality that's almost Machiavellian, I yes. think. Yeah. Maybe not almost. Maybe it's explicitly Machiavellian. <laughs> Um, the ends justify the means if uh, the, the Luddites out there want to know. Um, <laughs> did I just insult some listeners? I think I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, keep, I'll tell going. you when I edit whether he did. All right. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so he he starts out sort of like an uh, uncomfortable ally to Arendt. Maybe yeah, you know they they they've got their their differences, but they can unite on on some common ground. And Drecht ultimately has his goal to care for his family right back home. Mm-hmm. But then he becomes more or less uh, the uh, genocidal overlord <laughs> of yep. the island on which they've shipwrecked. Yeah. Uh- I have two things, an aside going back to the first episode, Quake, and uh, me being contrary. But uh, first, the, the, the aside <laughs> is, uh, Drecht is always described as filthy again. Oh, yeah. So he, it, it, that, that's set up as well, too, which has kind of that aspect. He's just, yeah. Um, the only time he's not described as being stained is when he and Arendt are having a quiet moment where Arendt is playing and they're singing and he's singing and that there. Like... That seems to be a very quiet mm. moment where he's not really explicitly described as dirty, but almost every time mm. else he is. Um, the other thing, maybe I'm just being contrary for contrary's sake, but his morality to me is almost frighteningly simple. It's the way it plays out that's interesting. Okay. Because his I mean, moral code is what is best for me. 
And that is it, writ large. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he cares for his wife and daughters is why what is best for me includes them. If he didn't, then it wouldn't include them. It's still what is best for me, but what is best for me is that I like these people. Um, Okay. The other aspects to what is best for me that uh, ties into it is that he's intelligent enough to think long term. It is not what is best for me right now. It is what is actually best for me long term, at least in this life. Therefore, Hmm. he is able to work within the rules and standing of the society and situation that he finds himself in because maybe he did want to snap and murder the governor general. But Mm -hmm. that would not be best for him because he'd be happy for three seconds and then someone else would kill him. Maybe he wanted to get Arendt out of the way by murdering him and tossing him aside, but that would not be best for him because Arendt would completely flatten him. That's an... Yeah, I I think I tend mm-hmm. to agree with that, but I think the interesting part of it, a, I think it that is, without being any anything even close to an expert on Machiavelli, I think that all is very Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, I don't disagree with that in the slightest. Yeah, of the term that we tend to use it nowadays, right? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yes, but uh, to me, the interesting part, if I agree with that, because Arndt is, yeah, like you just said, the he tries to become the overlord at the end. He's the one who essentially proposes um, martial law on the island, mm-hmm. like basically creating a whorehouse out of all the remaining yeah. women. Right, which is basically the when, story when, that the true story. Yeah, that yes, sparked that the inspiration of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the so when, like when the, the most polite part, part for what you I do is brothel. Ex- you've got a problem. Yeah, yeah. The the interesting part, if I accept the argument that his morality is just based on what's best for him is that especially in that passage in that in that section um that's not how he argues it he argues it in terms of what's best for everybody Mm -hmm. and i think um what i was picking up there was was Stuart Turton sort of doing what struck me as borderline satire or certainly sort of a <laughs> oh sure um, a presentational or broad strokes like critique of people who get themselves into power yeah i mean maybe it's just mm-hmm. a critique of politicians sort of mm-hmm. sort of as a base mm-hmm. concept but people who um but not just politicians like you know there's certainly plenty of other categories um including religious leaders who who uh, fall into this of people who get themselves into power by claiming that they know what's best for either everybody or for a specific group of people, or, yeah, yeah. Or for the majority, um, but actually are looking to sort of create a situation where they're at the top of the heap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you could probably read that specific critique back into a lot of the other characters and a lot of the other passages yeah. of this book. Yes. Maybe it was just the clearest to me there. As we were talking about this, it actually... You know, I was thinking about morality, and mm-hmm. I will come fully clean and confess that, like, specifically in fiction and in novels especially, I often don't care about discussing morality. Like, it's just that. often not an interesting aspect to me, partly mm-hmm. because um, the easy fallacy is for me to take my morality and try to read it back onto an author mm-hmm. who doesn't oh, care about it, is not interested in it. And it doesn't factor into the novel. It doesn't factor in. Right. Also because moralistic readings of novels historically have often 
sort of collapsed them. So they, they, what it tends, what Just a moralist agreement results a novel in a spike in their sales tends to do. <laughs> I'm ignoring that. Is it tends to take sort it, it tends to flatten an interpretation of a novel. Yep. Like you could have an author who has built a lot of texture and a lot of subtlety into a novel and taking it from a specific moral perspective just sort of ignores everything that isn't in the canon of the that. The story morality. is about this, yeah. Yes. Um and if you read a moral into a story famously, you'll get shot. Exactly. Ah. Well, that's just into Huckleberry Finn, and oh. that's probably because Mark Twain was writing right in the heart of the Victorian era, <laughs> the worst era for this sort of criticism. <laughs> um, so I, I tend to resist it just because part of me is like, tends to think that unless it's explicitly called for, unless, and you do have some novels like this, especially in the 18th and 19th century, where an author says, the moral of this novel is X, or mm-hmm. this is a novel promoting XYZ morality. Okay. Um, they'll either say that implicitly or explicitly sometimes. Mm. And if if you have, you know, if you have that, then fine. It's fine to analyze a novel along those lines. Sure. If you don't have that, usually the project of novelists, like Milan Kundera said, a novel is the best medium we have at emb- embodying ambiguity. Um, hmm. So often reading a novel moralistically just flattens all of the ambiguity that's there okay and all of this is to say that like as we were talking about morality just now the thing that occurred to me is another and this is again my second proposed like grad school um (laughs) thesis analysis of Mm -hmm. this book is that maybe each character embodies a different type of morality because i think hmm. absolutely that it's like legitimate to look at morality in this novel i just don't necessarily think that the novel itself is bent towards inculcating no, a specific yeah, you're not in the state of making a judgment call of this right, is the exactly morality that's being stated yeah yeah maybe right. and to, that's again to boil down what you just said to some very flat words but uh <laughs> I, I think mm-hmm. maybe but maybe part of right maybe part of my initial pushback, and I I don't disagree with that. I think that's very right, and this is me going. I think part of the reason that I instinctively go in that direction is I am firmly of the opinion that all media teaches, even if that's not what it's meant to do. Oh sure, and so knowing what it's teaching and how it's teaching it <clears throat> is important. Uh, again yeah. that but part part of that is me reading into it and working with it and and that's something that i need to work on very much because if it's not teaching this but it's what that's what it taught me i need to know what it taught me versus what it's actually teaching as well right <laughs> sure and like mm-hmm. and i'm not saying this about you nick because mm-hmm. i don't disagree with the idea that all media teaches mm-hmm. what i tend to think and this is the part i'm not saying about you but what i tend to think <laughs> is that people who say that are usually wrong about what media teaches. What is being taught. Yeah, what I, 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 yes. I can agree with that for sure. I, yeah, and uh, most media, and I would say most media and most eras, what it teaches is, for lack of a better word, harmless. It isn't, okay. it isn't going against the norm. It isn't going in a different direction. It's teaching either well-worn truths or things that are generally agreed with or that can easily be called out. Um, and again, this is going too far in one direction, but... Uh, that's interesting yeah mo- moving in with th- with this for the idea of uh Stuart Turton and there th- like uh with Drecht and his thing I think yeah that the reason that I find his thing simple is because uh or and simple isn't the word I want but uh, a lot of what he does that doesn't go directly against that can be put to intelligence 
rather mm. than moral leaning. Uh, for the, the idea of the politician, the person who's saying this is what's best for everyone, that's there. When a character says, I'm doing what's best for me and I don't care about the rest of you, oftentimes that is portrayed as morally bad, morally dark, but it's also just stupid. <laughs> like no one succeeds on that unless they are so ridiculously powerful that no one else's saying matters to them and that's right. usually the stock flat big bad character who has to get defeated by the hero <laughs> the characters who are more interesting than that, much more interesting than that, have the same simple morality in some cases. And again, simple is not the best word. The same straightforward morality is I am doing what is best for me. But they are they have more social awareness than that mm. or more social intelligence. They know that if I go out and say I'm doing what's best for me, I don't care what you think. They're immediately going to get pushback. But if they go... What's best for me is actually what's best for you. They can work things around. Interesting. So there's a nexus of morality and intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, which aren't... They're, they're like... Ships two different axes. Um, <laughs> on this thing. Um, where Okay, so take Pips, who's mm -hmm. very intelligent. Zero morality. Mm -hmm. Right? Direct might fall somewhere a little lower on the intelligence, maybe a little higher on the morality. I maybe about the same. I could see that. Like the the biggest uh, comparison between the two of them that I find is that both neither of them care very much. Uh, Sammy doesn't care in the slightest, but neither of them care very much about what the social or cultural world around them says in terms of moral correct and incorrect but both of them sure. are aware that if they act without with complete abandon at all times there are more than enough people to stop them <laughs> sure <laughs> i mean i think that a part of this proposed thesis like a subsection of it would further propose a spectrum of morality that i've taught in in you know teaching like writing or literature classes before of how your moral compass is related to what the society around you oh, um for sure. deems to be moral yeah mm -hmm. um and it's it's pretty problematic because i i one one uh uh piece that i've used to talk about this problem is uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm. Um, and I mm. would, a thing I would, I would propose to my class is, is there morality outside of the law of the society that you're in? Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people are tempted to just assume, and this is a very human nature thing that you find across cultures, we tend to assume that whatever the law is that most people around us sort of by default follow, um, is correct or at least is more correct than not correct but mm -hmm. if you just assume that if you push that to its you know its extreme, extreme. you're a slave catcher in, in the 1850s mm -hmm. in the south you're you, you sanction you know, immorality uh, yeah, yeah you're you're a guard in you know a, a concentration camp concentration camp mm -hmm. yeah. yeah um Falling so like yeah. you have the to that that 
for most people, that would you have to not um, assume that. But if you push it all the way to the other extreme, the other extreme is I make up my own morality based either on what's good for me or what I decide. Mm. Um, and then you are, you know, your direct or your uh, <laughs> um, Sammy Pips, who, neither of whom I would propose are characters that we are, if we're assuming that we're supposed to fully <laughs> accept the morality of anybody. We're not asked right. to I don't them. think it's them. Well, <laughs> yes. Antisocial um, personality disorder and, I don't mean to drop it, antisocial personality disorder and sociopathy, both of those basically operate on this idea of personal morality is the only norm and social morality is an iceberg to be avoided at the most. There are many people who deal with those issues, who deal with those uh, disorders that can live completely normal lives within society. But that is because they realize that that's the easier way to do, not because they feel a moral compulsion to do so. Right. Uh, Maybe another way to say it is uh, personal morality and social morality inform each other. They are different things that are interrelated and inform each other. Whereas intelligence informs methodology. Right. Hmm. So how you Re- get what you want. I'm really resisting the urge to analyze these characters in terms of a Dungeons and Dragons alignment scale. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think the perfect, Dungeons and Dragons but... alignment scale, part of the reason that every discussion about that breaks down yep. Yep. is that it is more or less sort of at a right angle to both of the things that we just talked yes. about. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not balanced perfectly along any of those lines. Yeah, true. And that's true. before you even get into, you know, how everyone defines chaotic and lawful and right. all the other terms yep. slightly differently yep. in a way that if you, the more you drill down into it, the more unstable it becomes. Like, true. I often say as a, and here we go, but I often <laughs> say uh, as, as really sort of a provocation that the most evil alignment is lawful neutral. Okay. Because, again, it, it's the same thing I just said in slightly not quite as nerdy terms, but, to, you to know, f- again, lawful neutral is a guard at a concentration camp. To, to right. Be far You're only too following pedantic. the law. Oh. Um, yeah. uh, to yeah. be far too pedantic to it, maybe what I would clarify and say is lawful neutral is capable of the deepest evil. Can you hear him? I yep. Hear him. Yep. Can you hear me? Oh. oh, okay. Now I can hear you. What, what okay. I said is, uh, lawful neutral is the alignment capable of the deepest evil. So, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, but to, to separate the two, probably... it is not the most evil alignment, but is the alignment capable of the deepest evil. Probably the the most precise version Be- of what I was uh, saying is that it's the yeah. uh, most potentially evil alignment. Sure. Mm-hmm. It is also potentially capable the of... most evil or the most potentially evil. I think I I meant it the second way, yeah, pretty specifically, <laughs> I, I, or I, that it's the most like that it is the most evil alignment in the sense that it's the least moral because okay. you have you, you know argument. it's entirely external the 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 morality that you ex- exercise is okay. something completely external mm-hmm. to any responsibility or agency on your part, mm-hmm. right. To to bring it back to the book and to tie in with this <laughs> idea all. of it that that you know double axis of intelligence and morality, I think there's a connection there. But uh, th- th- this is my question: the folly that appears and is a little bit of a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why is it so, called the folly? I'd argue very much a MacGuffin. Very um, much a MacGuffin. 
Probably because... I don't know where uh, you're... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, and this is somewhat flimmit, because that's what the governor general called it when she when he first caught Leah making it. <laughs> um, and so okay, it's, an in, it's, it's, it's an insult to him. Uh, it's, it's the best insult meant... Leah can make to him. Oh, I see, I see. Um, yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, I was just going to say, I don't know how you're tying this into morality, but like that is a question I meant to bring up at some point, because mm. the one at all adjacent to this historical cultural context um, usage of the term folly that I know of, and is probably at least loosely connected, mm. is that a folly was often something in a slightly, slightly later period, though maybe in this period, and I just don't know, mm. um, found on like the estate of a rich person. Like I know they had them in England, I can only assume they had them in other places in Europe, and a folly would be something that was like built on the estate as part of a garden or something mm. that was intentionally made to look like it was a much older and different thing than it was. Like often they were, it was like you'd build something that looked like the ruins of a Greek, you know, temple mm. or something. Um, and like, I think in, I want to say in the 2000, the, the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, I think there's a scene or maybe I'm thinking of Downton Abbey. That tells you a lot about how I classify media. But <laughs> um, in one or the other of those, or some movie like it, there's a big scene where they have a folly on an estate, and it's like as if in England somehow a Greek temple had been sure. made and let to go to ruin. And you, but it's deliberately built, you know, 50 years ago it or something. It feels like a very Lord Byron sort of thing. Yes, it would be a very Lord Byron yeah. sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so, there were other follies, like... You know, different, but but that was the idea. Was like something intentionally built purely decoratively to be sort of evocative and okay. gothic. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I was like, uh, a quick Google search gets me that uh, the original, uh, the original meaning of folly was madness or mental defect mm-hmm. or an example of unwise thought, which ties me in even more clearly to the Lee idea, at least in my own mind, because. Yeah. That is how the governor general treats her intelligence. Oh, sure. As a mental defect, as a mental defect, as madness. That's a, I mean, that's valid. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's probably, there's and more. it may just be right. that the loose, the loosest, most surface level connection of I like, it being a physical object. I like that, that too. Yeah. That there's kind of a thing I, looking older and, you know. He, yeah. Here, here's my thoughts on it. I, I And I think. It's, I don't think it's ever explained in the text of the book, and that's why it's a fair question to ask. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of Stuart Turton himself commenting mm-hmm. on the characters. It being a MacGuffin, right. it being something that is so significant, and the most significant thing that's on this entire ship is folly. Right. Uh, that's That's... that it's so very apparently is a commentary to me on the use and nature of the governor general and others and their intelligence and lack thereof leaning into um, maybe leaning into that who cared least about the folly in the book mm. Who? <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to think through it, but I think the mo- person who cared least about the folly as an actual thing was probably Arndt. I, that's where I was kind of leaning. That uh, it or Pips. Been him. Pips didn't care. Sure. 
but I mean, Pips, they didn't care for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. that's the I think thing. Pips didn't care because he had taken the measure of the folly yeah. and knew that it was irrelevant to any of any of the layers of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And Arendt didn't care because he already saw that it was irrelevant to any of what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and also Just because... kind of instinctively. and Instinctively, mm-hmm. uh, but also because Pips didn't care. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Well, and I, I think Arendt was also like, this only matters if it helps me deal with the actual issues. Whereas for many right. for many of the characters, the folly was the actual issue. And I wonder mm-hmm. if there's something right. that can be played on for that, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's it's somewhat interesting anyway. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I was just saying, yeah, I agree. Oh, okay. I, I do want to talk just briefly about the actual events of the book in terms of, like, old Tom's plot. Mm. So, like, we get kind of the breakdown, you know, the, the parlor scene right. uh, at the end of, you know, how it all happened, who done it, and how, um, with the, the, the leper being up on top of the, the mast and someone else being inside. Right. Um talking for him and then setting him on fire so that he falls down and dies. Um, and Pips being disguised and hidden and stuff and other, like there are a lot of moving parts Yes, yeah, to the whole thing. I will say just for my own reaction personally, like usually with, with plots like this, I either get pretty much everything almost right from the get go, or I get nothing and I'm shocked by the yeah. ending. Sure. Um, I will say I predicted more or less exactly how that whole nice. the leper first, the leper yep. situation okay. how that happened. Um, the one thing that kept me thinking maybe there was something supernatural going on here was the everyone hearing old Tom's voice. Yes, yes. okay, um, that was clever. And the thing was, if I had unlocked that, if I had like figured out how that might be happening that probably would have unlocked the whole thing because mm-hmm. the only sure. way that that happens that has like a materialistic explanation is if someone was like if this was a ship that was fully built mm-hmm. and well, maybe maybe yeah. this is where the term folly comes in again because that ship itself is a performance it's right it's maybe a type of folly uh, it's a stage actually yeah we, it's a stage we, we, exactly. we get that oh my goodness we get that really really early Mm-hmm. All right, Mister. Read the book twice. Bozy, prove please, it. Uh, prove please it. Support that. Statement. What does Bozy <laughs> say he's building? A trap. Lathagar. Oh, Lathagar is is Nornish for trap. What is Bozy? Oh. A ship. Shipwright. Right. Oh, he built the ship as a trap. The entire right. ship. Okay. All we right. We get it. Yep. We get it from the beginning. Ugh. Yeah. Very good. Well, if you speak Nornish. If, if you speak, speak Nornish. Nornish. <laughs> Which I believe is... Uh, or Laxagar, that's what it is. I, I think that's supposed to be... Norwegianish or something because Nornish makes me think of Norns, which makes me think of Norse mythology, but I might just be way off base. It's related, I'm pretty sure. I think it has... I've encountered it before in, like literature much closer to this period oh spoken in orkney and shetland oh that's why that's why i've encountered it because scotland yes okay Hmm. okay that's why and that's why sammy used it because he thought it would be funny 
After Orkney and Shetland were pledged to Scotland by Norway, it was, an English name. It was gradually replaced by Scots. So it does have that Norwegian connection. Right. Okay. It's this blend of Norwegian and Scottish, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Um, okay. oh, that's cool. All right. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. Well, that's a fun one, but but yeah, no, it's... good catch on that. Yes. yes. That, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Bozy's a shipwright. He's building a trap. The ship is a trap. Yeah. Yep. And it's the entire um, ship. Wow. Yep. yep. No, very good. But no, I, I I had the exact same thoughts that like, yeah, okay, obviously there's someone inside. Like there has to be. Exactly right. how we don't know, but somebody has to be inside. That's pretty clear. Right. Um for with, the, with the leper? With, with the leper, yeah, yeah. Bozy's whole thing. Um and then yeah, the whispers started happening and I remember that moment being like, Okay, I have no idea. Right. Like I'm leaning one way or another, like, okay, this is this has to be crafted. The, this is all made up. And people are just running with their superstitions. And then the whispers happen. I'm like, okay, drawing board. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> what, what, I, but it's so, it's so close because it's like if you, if you just followed your first thought yep. through with that. Then exactly. You like, oh, someone's I mean, inside. This, uh, yeah, so th- th- this is probably me being uh, – I'm just realizing my thought process here. And this is me showing that I am an inferior writer to this because <laughs> I'm realizing what I wanted. What I wanted yeah. – is for in the last few pages old tom to actually show up not yeah. because they tried to summon him but because by setting up this trap and th- and making everything the way they could they okay. actually brought him in <laughs> so basically being like oh yeah we we put together this whole thing evoking a devil's name repeatedly over right. and over and over again and then and here he, he comes saying, yeah, this is mine now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and, maybe you know, that, and that's just me, but. <laughs> okay. There's some element. It's not, it's not satisfying to you the way that you wanted it to yeah, be. And but I like, think there that's is it. some element yeah. of that in the psychology of everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there is that idea that, you know, even, um, even without venturing into realms of spiritualism or, right. or theology that, you know, even just psychologically, if you sort of dabble with devils too much, that they will appear right. mm-hmm. um, through your own sort of uh, faculty for belief or for perception or for, you know, but molding I, your own perception or whatever. Right. Like, that's a sort of well-known psychological trope. So it is there. It's just not there the way you want right. it. And, and I think it, tying it into what you're saying there, I think like that I'm trying to remember when I first read through it, but I think that was my first thing was like, there is someone pulling the strings, but mm. I wanted both to happen. I wanted someone to be pulling right. the strings <laughs> and accidentally getting what they asked for. Yeah, that would be an interesting plot, but it would be... Yeah. It, it's a different Outside plot. of... Well, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different It would be plot. outside of any of the genres that we <laughs> yes. even have Correct. thought this book it, was. It, it, would, it would either go full horror story or something a little different. Yeah. It's exactly. verging a little bit, I think, on like that the concept of you know those like lost societies. Like, what's that right. colony with the what's the one word that's written? You know what Ro- I'm talking uh, about? Croatoan. Oh, Roanoke. Croatoan, yeah, it right. Was, it was Roanoke, like, and they went to Croatoan yeah, the and settlers. Yeah, yeah on, on Croatoan, the uh, you know, yeah, never mind. But but like that's that sort mm-hmm. of concept, right? Yeah. Where like here you've got this shipwreck, and that's primed for all kinds of fantasy stories and mm-hmm. like mysteries the unanswerable things right so it, 
ready um, for all that. By the way, I <laughs> apropos of all of this, I did figure out what genre this book mm. is. Oh. Like I've answered the oh, genre okay. question that all we right. started out. Ethan with. is going to bring us all home and give us the answer, and this is um, authoritative, and we all will know from henceforth. Of course. This, book this is, is how it will be categorized in libraries and bookstores. Yes. From this time forward. How long do you this think? This book you can is go? a gothic novel. Oh, okay. This I is agree. A well, that's novel. that came out of the field. Um, but I get it. No, it it shouldn't though, because if you know what so I like I get it. A lot of people think that the gothic novel is um you know, Dracula or yep. Uh, any of the Brontes, like mm-hmm. Jane Eyre, or Wuthering Heights, or whatever. No, those are all neo-Gothic novels. They are not Gothic novels. The Gothic <laughs> but novel not that ended pedantic. in 1820 with the publication of Melnoth the Wanderer. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it reemerged exactly 200 years later in 2020 with The Devil in Dark Water. Oh my gosh. Um, uh-huh. Because uh, exactly the Gothic novel could be... It could have supernatural elements. Uh-huh. Melnoth the Wanderer is a literal, like, Faust figure uh-huh. who right. sells his soul to, um, literally sells his soul to the devil, is granted, like, 400 years of extra life, but he has to spend that whole 400 years, like, wandering around trying to find someone to take his place in the deal. Right. Um, it's a wild book. I highly recommend it. Wild. Um, I, I, I last read it in high school, so if it's, like, just incredibly bad we should bring that on the podcast what's that we should bring it on the podcast uh it's on our list of mondo books yes it's long enough that it would have to be a absolutely mondo book. i would not okay. um <laughs> see fit to just assign it to you it's at least my penguin slightly oversized paperback is at least 600 pages maybe even more yeah than that, so. yeah anyway um frankenstein is another gothic novel frankenstein yes. these <laughs> days would be classified as a science fiction novel right uh and radcliffe's novel the mysteries of udolpho is also considered hmm. a classic of the gothic genre i have not read it so forgive me if i mischaracterize I it but i believe that in udolpho and others of Anne radcliffe's novels um like it does all have a naturalistic explanation like that's fascinating radcliffe's books are very much you know there's a virgin in a in a is it kind of rebecca ish like okay you know there's there's a She's always like a beautiful virgin, I think. Um, sure. In a castle in danger, and like spooky stuff is happening, okay. and you're meant to believe that maybe it's supernatural. But if I'm remembering what I've read about Radcliffe Wright, so this is obviously third level sourcing here, but um, it always has a materialistic explanation. Interesting. Okay. Castle of Otranto, mm. uh, mm-hmm. very much just a fantasy novel, and yep. a wild and inconsistent one at that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so this novel fits in this is what i was saying about this being more like a fantasy novel than like a mystery or a thriller Mm yeah um this novel and you know i we're we're uh quickly chewing up time here and i think i've talked about this on the podcast before i don't remember when or where that's right what episodes but um the gothic was always always concerned with the uncanny mm-hmm. that's what unites yes. the gothic as a that's, genre yep that makes sense um, and the uncanny is considered by literary critics to be an inherently post-enlightenment category of experience mm-hmm. because the enlightenment was sort of this this like you look at naturalistic 
Yeah, it was this knife that divided the materialistic from the spiritual. Right. Before the Enlightenment, you know, astrology and alchemy are not considered different from astronomy and chemistry. Right. That's mm. a very broad and inaccurate statement, but that you get the But sense. you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Enlightenment, when you have this very sharp division between, and, you know, this goes back to David Hume, among mm-hmm. other uh, people I don't like. Um, yep. You get... Uh, this very sharp division between the material reality, the, the repeatable, provable reality, the and spiritual reality, the, you know, <laughs> um, stuff that's not that. And then the uncanny is like a th- secret third category that exists sort of with one foot in one and one foot in the other. So like a good ghost story yeah. very much lives in the uncanny, where you have these provable spiritual... You know, like a poltergeist story. Something physical is moving around, but there's no explanation Mm -hmm. for it. (laughs) Um, And so gothic novels live at this juncture of sometimes the explanation is material, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's somehow a mix of the two, sometimes it's Mm -hmm. neither. And I would place The Devil in the Dark Water right in the same, like, categorical netting. And that's why Arendt can't believe in an afterlife. Hmm. Because then okay. he is the POV character that is dealing with the uncanny. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 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 Mm. Now, how much of that was a um, a serious thesis versus <laughs> how much of that was a you-know-what post? Um, I'm not <laughs> going to comment on. Mm-hmm. But It's yeah, at least thought-provoking. Yeah, that's all I wanted. Th- and speaking a, of thought-provoking... to it to talk about, but... Yeah. Uh, speaking of meat to talk about, let's look at the reading group guide. You were better the first time. <laughs> Those were both fine segues, and I'm mad about that. <laughs> the, the, the first one was better. Uh, the, the, uh, you're, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. But yeah, you're, you're, yeah. better is only qualification within the category of good. So, <laughs> um, no, you can have a better bad. Shh. Um, <laughs> number one. <laughs> What an incredible argument for one brother to give to another. <laughs> um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna take these really rapid fire, and I want to hear from both of you on this. Um, we're gonna give the precedent to the special guest, of course. Uh, so, Ethan, you got to be quiet while Nick answers first. I mean, I am I answering the question or answering how good the question is? Yes. Okay. Um, Just your response to the question is. The I only see. Thing that's okay. So not yes. answering the question, but responding to it. Thank you. And once we get through number eight, there are eight questions in the reading group guide. We will rate out of ten. Each of us can can give it a rating. And keep in mind, the highest on this podcast that we have rated a reading group guide is four out of ten. All right. Number one, Governor General Yan Han refuses to heed the leper's warning, and later he refuses to return to Batavia. Do you think his actions are the result of disbelief? Or pride, this, Nick. This question is irrelevant to the general conversation of uh, the book because Jan Han is not a character. He is a prop for people to act upon. Oh, snap. All right, Ethan. We're going to reread the, the final sentence of that question. Do you think his actions are the result of disbelief or pride? Yes, next question. Yeah. <laughs> right. that's, that's a good way Fantastic. to say it. Too. <laughs> Number two. Most of the characterization of Samuel Pipps comes from Arendt's memories and opinions of him. How would the story be different if Sammy's perspective was in play more often? Do you think your opinion of him would change, Nick? You either wouldn't have a story or he'd be lying to you the entire time. Yes. <laughs> Next question. 
Oh, uh, my, uh, answer is you either wouldn't have a story or he'd be lying to you the entire time. No. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. Number three. Who has power throughout the book? Does all power look the same, Nick? You're fishing for the answer of no to your second question, which I have to give to you. Um, (laughs) And the answer is all of the uh, point of view characters and a few of the others. Even? Uh, Can you re-ask the two questions quickly? Who has power throughout the book? No. Does all power look the same? No. Next question. (laughs) There you go. That's a good way to do it, too. Number three. Uh, okay, I just want to comment on number three. Oh, this God. is this 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 is my pet peeve of literary analysis. Looking at power dynamics, yep, like it only goes so far. Well, and I would say my my take because I agree. I tend to have the same pet peeve. My take on it is it's always relevant, but it's rarely helpful or interesting. Yes, yep. thank you. That's exactly right. If you get Sometimes into an argument... it is like we spent. A lot of time talking about power in filthy animals. Yes, that was like was one thing that I was relevant. Thinking. But I think that's where you know the author was coming at it from that question. Right, the power is the focus. In, in in that case, it's it's relevant and yep. valid, but mm-hmm. most of the time, it's not. Right, it can All be right, number four. It's not worth. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What is the source of Arendt's loyalty to Sammy? Is it solely because of the work they've done together? What else might be at play, Nick? You're fishing again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Very good. Ethan. Uh, I could answer all of these individually, but what this feels like is that the author of the reading group guide has a very specific theory. Yep. <laughs> and it probably involves some fan fiction they wrote about them being like a romantic couple, <laughs> and I don't want to engage with it. At all. I don't know, but, uh, in, in but and I could be maybe. I uh, yipes. I could be wrong about what I just said, but like what even <laughs> if I am wrong, what I just said is like a stand-in for whatever is true, yeah. and my reaction is still uh, the same. Yeah. <laughs> As an aside, in, in Bible studies, this would be the guess what the pastor is thinking question. Oh, sure. Okay. All right. <laughs> yes. Uh, I love it. Yes. Which you should never All ask. right. Number five. Guess who the pastor is mad at this week? <laughs> <laughs> it's Dan. I took a vow not to say who the worst is, but it's Dan. Uh, yikes. Right. Number five. Sammy's advice is to hold on, quote, to what you know until you know what it means, end quote. How does this shape Arendt's investigation? Could it have benefited him to be more candid, or would it that have increased the danger? Which him are you talking about in the second question? Are you talking about Sammy or uh, Arendt? I guess I, I was thinking Arendt. Arendt. Because yeah. if you're talking about Arendt, it's irrelevant. Arendt never dissembled. He he didn't hold oh, okay. things so close to the best. And if you're talking about okay. Sammy, you don't have a story. Hmm. Uh, my response is uh, anything is possible. Read Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being and then move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Number six. How do superstition and fear shape the action of the story? Does a superstition have power even if it isn't true? Congratulations. You figured out one of the points of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like an okay question, except that you've inherently made meaningless the definition of the word true by putting it in quote marks. Yep. Right. 
Congratulations. <laughs> like, you, this... You've learned the idea of relative truth. I'm sorry. Uh, this... Okay, I want to comment on this one, too, especially the second question within question number six. That is two questions. Um, that uh, does superstition have power even if, if it isn't true? That's, like, one of the few through lines that I actually consistently noted in the margins yeah. of my book. That, like... Yes, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, people are reacting to it. And so, stop. This isn't as clever as you think it is. No. Yeah. I mean, all it reminds, all it makes me want to do is quote the epigraph to Umberto Eco's book, uh, Foucault's Pendulum. Okay. Which is another somewhat long one, but that may appear on this podcast at some hmm. point. Uh, which is just superstition brings bad luck. Yeah. Nice. If you meditate on that one for a second, you'll it. have all of the answer you need to this question. I love that it. Works. Number seven, what did you think of Captain Crowell's change of allegiance? What was his real motivation, Nick? We needed a reason for the ship to wreck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like Nick's answer. My answer is literally to both. Don't care. Yeah, don't care. (laughs) Doesn't matter. All right, number eight. If you were in Sarah's position at the end of the book, what would you decide, Nick? I don't have the life experience, and my opinion on the end of the book uh, is already fairly clear. So, yes. Good. Ethan? Uh, I, if I were Sarah, and this ties into the fan, the um, headcanon that I decided during our discussion about the end of the book last episode, mm-hmm. which I do want to mention very briefly in a yes. second. Um, if I were Sarah, I would just begin compiling a Batman-style dossier mm. on everyone in this this group that had formed, yes. so that when Captain America: Civil War had ended, uh, or had begun, rather, I would be prepared because this would you, actually you yes. would have your sachets of kryptonite exactly. available and ready. Exactly, I'm yeah. getting mixed up um, in the universes. But. I I. Also don't care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I did it on purpose just to hurt everyone listening to this. <laughs> um, also, but yes, my... my uh, At least you can admit it, unlike this reading group guy. <laughs> <laughs> my headcanon um, about... Because we were talking about like what happens after maybe there are cracks already forming. My headcanon is that ultimately in book 2 or 5 or 14, mm. Leah kills Sammy Pibbs. I love it. Yes. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, perfect. Sammy and Leah, uh, team up to kill Sarah. Ooh, interesting. Hmm, dark. Well, that, that is the version of the series that's like the Boxcar Children, where it's 150 books long, because Sarah would have to go through a Jason Solo arc of see, becoming a Sith here, Lord. No, I, which I doesn't see, seem unlikely. Sa- Sam, I see Sammy and Kreishi corrupting Leah to kill Arendt. And then Leah growing a conscience or realizing what effect that has had on her conscience and then teaming up to kill Sammy. Sammy won't let, yeah, Sa- Sammy won't let Leah kill Arendt. He, he, uh, he, the, they, they have a, more of a Joker-Batman thing going. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why yeah. they have him kill Sarah. They have her kill Sarah. Ooh, okay. Especially All since right. she, the only thing... she already hits a rebellious ahead, moment Nick. and is dealing with uh, the ardent desire to kill a parent. Um, the only thing I want to add to this discussion is to point out that I myself made a third reference besides the DC Marvel thing, which was to pre-Disney Star Wars Extended Universe canon. Oh Very my nice. goodness. Thank you. 
That's all. That's all I need. Yes, congratulations, Ethan. You're very clever. <laughs> um, and that's all. This this whole six, five, six year podcast has just been a long con to get you to say that exact sentence. <laughs> uh, and now this and hotel now I'm room, unlocked. <laughs> this hotel room that we're uh, recording in will dissolve, and you'll see that it's like just a projection on oh. a spaceship. Oh and, my goodness! Yeah. Wow. And now I've opened our way into the Stargate to i don't know things yep good yeah, good, good you're, good you're both eaten by a poor sci-fi property property reference there yeah. speaking of being very clever nick what would you rate this reading group guide out of 10 two all right do you do you want to elaborate or <laughs> just say uh, no it can very easily <laughs> it, it can it does not uh promote discussion or go into deeper themes all right very good any any reason that it's better than a one? I haven't given very many scores. <laughs> All right, very good. Um, that that that's very that's very fair, Ethan. Uh, I was before Nick even said it. I was already going to say a two. Mm. The only reason it's better than a one is question six about superstition having power, even if it isn't true. That does hit on. Granted, one of the easiest mm-hmm. and simplest and least interesting themes of the book but a genuine real through line of the book yeah they touched it through i want it on the record that before ethan gave his re- rating and nick gave his rating i was also thinking of giving this a two also because of question number six yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because it's the only one that half touches on an actual theme in the book mm-hmm. um but otherwise is completely inane and pointless it's- it like Okay, I get the point of reading group guides. It It's to give people the idea that, okay, you can sit around and have a basis for discussion when really the point is you just want some social interaction. Right. But, like, can we can we get something a little bit more intelligent? Is that impossible? <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. Yeah, is, I is mean... Be uh, intentional about having a basis for discussion, not conversation. Right. Okay. All right, that's fair. That's a fair division to mm-hmm. to draw here. All right. Well, with with that in mind, we are at the end of our discussion here. Unless there are any more last minute points to make, um, Ethan, you had something you were thinking of, right? About superstition or something, or Sarah's position. I don't remember. What did you say? You said well, you I to used talk about the something. Sarah question to dovetail into my fan theory about. Mm-hmm. Okay, was um, that it? I think that was it. That I feel like there may have been one other completely unrelated thing, but mm-hmm. I can't think of it right now. And I, yeah, I'm gonna say right. I'm gonna say no. All right, Nick. It, anything else uh, to talk about? It was a terrible quick question for you guys because I am. Yeah. I will always say yes to a love story, even if it doesn't okay. work. Was it necessary here? necessary okay or that's useful or... i mean not ne- to to say necessary that's difficult like implies a whole spectrum of discussion so about... maybe a way w- would the story be lessened what? if it wasn't there I, I i'm gonna i'm gonna i want to rephrase your question to take it away from a yes or no question Perfect. to say what did the love story add okay um i mean to me what the love story if that's fair added mm-hmm. was like okay I guess, I guess I have two... I'll try to make them quick responses to that. One, 
Didn't the love story was my favorite thing. I wanted these two characters to get together with each other. And that was the only time I cared about morality because I didn't want them to turn into completely terrible murderers to do it. 100% agreement. 100% agreement. <laughs> um, yes. I think what the love story added was really a tricky hoop uh, for Stuart Turton to set himself to hop through. Okay. Which is... Making a satisfying love story within the historical context Mm. that he had set up for. It's a challenge, right? Um, Because I think that there, if you were to accept for the sake of argument that this is a satisfying love story and you Mm -hmm. were a 21st century reader with knowledge of the period all the baggage and of yeah and the bag and the genre based baggage the baggage of how these love stories have played out cheaply mm. because of the course the the cheap version that we've seen in dozens if not hundreds of movies is just they get together because they're both because hot. they're both the most attractive people yeah mm-hmm. they're both the hot and they're both the most sympathetic characters right. within the milieu right and no, no other work has been done um, never I think Turton's challenge was with yeah. all of that baggage to still make a satisfying <laughs> love story. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have an opinion on whether he did it objectively or whether he did it for me. Partly <laughs> with the second thing because like, I wanted it to happen so much that when it did, I was satisfied. Yeah. Um, and that's really all I care about. Mm-hmm. I like that. Just that he was thinking of you. That just Stuart Turton clearly... in front of his typewriter was thinking, Ethan will really like this bit. Of yes, just that he was clearly thinking of me personally and did exactly what I wanted to, wanted him to, rather, for me. Right. Yeah, just all of, of that Very nice. is really all I needed from that yeah. from that aspect. Stuart Turton is your personal author for hire. Of course. Okay, I'm not going that far. <laughs> oh, okay. Especially because there's a better than average chance he might hear these episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um... However, no, I, I just I just think my own personal subjective reaction blocks out any yeah. sort of objective um, yeah, can statement I can make. Other than the fact that him setting himself that challenge and him doing it, accomplishing it to whatever extent he did, rising to it, probably brought along more readers than if they hadn't, if if he had. So on a, like sure. a purely mercenary level of creating a satisfying story for the sort of readers who might be interested in any of the genres this book touches on i could argue that yes it was necessary or at least sure. that it was beneficial can you do a gothic novel without a love story sorry uh, that's, that's that's actually kinda, a really that's, valid that's like exactly also. what i was gonna say like if it's still in the genre of a lo- uh, of a gothic novel you have to have the love story mm-hmm. there right um as far as necessary otherwise like no it's not necessary you can have a story without it but i do think it enriches it mm-hmm. yeah that's, yeah, that's like that's I guess sort of what I was starting to, or mm-hmm. a version of what I was starting to say Towards, right when yeah. I started to answer this yeah. is is anything in fiction necessary is anything in a novel necessary <laughs> sure and oh that's boy. that's part of part yeah. of actually harkening back to my objection to simplistically moralizing about yeah. a novel is that I fell in love at a young age and have never fallen out of love with the preface to Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. <laughs> um, in, which he's, in which he states that the only excuse for making a useless thing is to love it intensely and that all art is inherently useless. Mm. And morality, to me, 
always borders on utilitarianism mm -hmm. and the closer you get to a utilitarian view of art the more i want to go throw up in a trash can I understand that. <laughs> yeah uh, it's like uh, uh all artworks are useless but art itself is not but that's a different thing but yeah, we, we'll have a discussion. Yeah, that, that, that's a completely different subject. But yeah, for, for me, that'll I, be in our secret third episode. Yeah. Exactly. For me, that that's a thing where it's like, yeah, um, it isn't like, for me, it it enriches the story and humanizes the characters, and I like it. So yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. that's valid. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Same thing. All right. Well, if that ends our our discussion on this, let's move on to ratings. Okay. Um, no one has uh, has lost. The, the podcast so far so we'll see uh in our next uh pair of episodes if ethan or i lose um but uh nick uh what do you think of your uh diet wild cherry pepsi rate it uh, on a scale of one to five uh four i like it but it's not good for me <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's amazing all right <laughs> Um, what about the book? We'll we'll give you the first rating on a scale of buy, borrow, to forget about it. Objectively, in terms of being well-written, being a gripping story, having interesting and involved characters, I remember these characters named, I remember the beats after two years of not looking at it, I like the characters, at least for the most part, especially uh, Arnd and Sarah, hmm. going through all of that. For that, this is a buy for me. From a personal standard, it is a borrow. I don't regret okay. reading it, but it is not the book for me. Sure. That's very fair. All right. Ethan? Uh, I say bye. Um, and this, again, goes back to my... Uh, I have surprised myself with my own ongoing thesis in this show <laughs> i guess i shouldn't necessarily be surprised but the thesis of supporting living authors mm -hmm. ah, um, yes. if if you know this was a book from 100 years ago my rating might be different but um i tore through this book in like two and a half days nice. um it i literally it was the first book in years that i was at work just thinking to myself, all I want to do is get home and see what happens in this book. <laughs> um, you know, I have I have other books that I love and, and go back to and read through quickly for other reasons, but this was the, the first one in a long time that broke through my, my cynicism and my, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, jadedness of having read tons of fiction. Even more so than Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and... You could easily get this book from the library and, you know, oh, read sure. it in a very short space of time. But I'd say if you can afford to buy it, um, then definitely do so. Um, I want more Stuart Turton books specifically to come out. And one of the best ways to make sure something like that happens is to support a living author. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was, it's, I mean, it's not literature in, in like the you know, Kundera or whatever Tristram Shandy sense or whatever, but um, that's the only knock against it in my book. Uh, and that's not even a knock. It's That's just the book being what it sets out to be. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say, I'd say buy it if you like any of the... Like, if you look at the cover of this book, if you read the back blurb and you like any of the things about it, 
Um, I don't think anyone in that category would regret buying it. So two quick asides as I was looking up. Uh, Both the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the devil in the dark water have been optioned for television. Hardcastle was bought by Netflix for a seven parter and, uh, and devil in the dark water is uh, urban myth is doing television, something for it. And then the other thing in November, 2020, apparently Stuart Turton signed, uh, signed on to write at least two more novels of the, of a similar vein as, Evelyn Hardcastle and the Devil sure. in the Dark Water, so there should be more. Which is yes. well, good. well. I hope for uh, just as an aside to the aside. Um, mm-hmm. While I hope for successful, you know, screen adaptations of both of these books, something being optioned is basically meaningless. Yeah, True. Um, I, I know that like, Netflix bought the rights gets... for Evelyn, but yeah, that's different. Yeah. I mean, well, just stuff gets stuck in development hell for. True reasons that no one seems to understand and you know happens for years like i remember finding out that the artemis fall books were optioned for film adaptations when i was 14 or 15 (laughs) and that film didn't come out till i was still waiting no it came out (laughs) everyone hated it and no one seems to have liked it if you like artemis fall you're still even that but no (laughs) that bad uh adaptation took like 15 years so so it's not Um, it's cool it would be cool if it it would be cool if it happens, but no, I, I, I don't want anyone to get their hopes up. I'm right. more excited about the two books that he says he's yeah. going to write. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. For sure. Michael? Uh, I'm rate? also going to rate it a buy. Um, I, I, I like your thesis about supporting living authors. Um, and to that end, I, I am just thrilled by everything that Stuart Turton has written, by which I mean the two novels that I've read by Stuart Turton. <laughs> yes. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I'm, I'm already noticing some similarities as we've talked about, uh, in, in this pair of episodes, <clears throat> some, uh, author quirks that are just delightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I, I love to see how his brain is working out on the page. And I want more of that. I want to explore his brain more. Stuart Turton, give me your brain. I want. I want to look into it. I want. <laughs> I want to sift through it. Please give me your brain. Um, all, right. all right. All right. Well, I'm gonna sit here and ponder how I'm gonna edit that little monologue. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Uh, Nick, rate the pairing now between uh, the Devil in the Dark Water and uh, uh, Diet Wild Cherry Pepsi. By uh, the rating scale of perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, and total mismatch. <laughs> mismatch. It's soda and a murder. It's <laughs> a claustrophobic murder mystery. They don't really pair. They both exist right. next yeah, to each other. <laughs> they both exist. Oil and water right here. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Ethan, uh, the pairing between The Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton and the Ben Riach, the 12 Space Eyed Single Malt Scotch Whiskey 3 Cask Mature. Did you guys rate under the Master Blender Rachel Berry? Did you Was guys that? rate the Scotch by itself? No, we'll do no, that next oh, pair of episodes. Okay. I forgot. Because yeah, we'll be drinking right. the next pair. Never mind then. Um, so, pairing wise, I think I'd say perfect match. Okay. I don't know if it's that like Speyside expression, but like I feel like there was enough. It, it, it's not like salty or smoky mm. necessarily, like Old Pulteney or Lafroy or Lagavulin, but like 
there's something about it that feels like very it it feels like a an island in the in northern scotland hmm. <laughs> um maybe there's a little bit of like sea salt or, or sea spray or something that's making me think that but but something about it just like it felt like if if you had handed me this and then told me to close my eyes and imagine i was on a dutch east india sailing ship <laughs> in the 17th century the scotch would make it easier rather than harder mm-hmm. um like it, something about it felt right and maybe when i have more of it and have considered it some more like maybe i'll be able to talk about that more articulately but i'm gonna say perfect match see i know what you mean and um i'm also going to say perfect match because i don't know it goes down just easy enough while still leaving me wanting to explore it enough yeah (laughs) it's a little bit mean but not like but not too mean aggressive yeah 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 all right so all right very good we agree too much on this episode sorry nat um (laughs) Nat did say in a recent missive that every time we apologize to him, he instantly forgives us. Oh, good. Which hey, I well, do appreciate. That's nice. So, yeah. um, what uh, what book are we going to be uh, reading next time, Ethan? Uh, we are going to be reading The Fisherman by Chigozi Obiomi. Thank you. Um, yeah, we, we talked about it. We introduced it a couple episodes ago. Right. So, so uh, and during about that. during that episode, those episodes, we will be still drinking the uh, Ben React the Twelve Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey three, three Cask Matured. Uh, so read along with that, and please give us your feedback in the contact section at tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line, uh, or on Twitter at Room with Scotch. Uh, uh, you can also find us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House group on Facebook. Facebook. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you are a Machiavellian dictator. Yeah. Um, and we'll do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we will do it and encourage you to turn it into your teachers or professors as we laugh while you are hauled off to plagiarism jail. Uh, that'll be fun. But Michael, so look- go to the tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, fill out the form. Uh, and uh, see what happens. But Michael, if you let that uh, Machiavellian dictator in, it'll be best for you and for your entire community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair argument. You're out! <laughs> um, uh, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Actual Play RPG Fiasco Podcast. Freddy Goes to a Podcast, where three grown men talk about the children's book series, Freddy the Pig. And Pokemon Rollout, the actual play RPG Pokemon Tabletop United podcast, for which Nick is the game master. So, Nick, where can we find you? Uh, at PokeRollNick on Twitter, uh, where I don't post and probably should, uh, and on the Pokemon Rollout Discord, where I post slightly more often. Very good. Ethan, where can we find you? I am at Bjartlet on Twitter, assuming Twitter still exists by the time this episode goes up. That's fair. Uh, true. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. <laughs> I'm at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party and we'll cry if the ocean makes us. Mm. That's it. Well, would you be able to tell? No, you would not know. Oh, okay. Oh, and that's kind of the just the It's, it's whatever's lurking in the dark water. Bye. Okay.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.